Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of From Tip to Tail. This podcast is brought to you by Cuddly. Cuddly is the only dedicated crowdfunding platform built specifically for animal welfare organizations worldwide. My name is Bridget. And I'm Sydney. Here on From Tip to Tail, we are bringing you raw, unscripted stories from animal welfare leaders. Together, we'll dive into the work that they do, the struggles they face, and the lives that are saved along the way. We would love to hear from you and hear about what you think of our podcast so far. So please leave a review below and have a chance to win some cuddly swag. Today, we're speaking to Carol Novello, a Harvard graduate, former president of Humane Society Silicon Valley and founder of Mutual Rescue, a national initiative that highlights the connection between people and pets. She also recently joined the board here at Cuddly. So let's get started. Hi, Carol. How are you? Great, Bridget. It's nice to be here. <laughs> it is nice to be here. Yeah, thank you for joining us on this like nice little Friday morning. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And hi to Sydney. Great to be with hi. you as well. Good to see you. We'll hear you. <laughs> so I know so many people who are going to be listening to this probably already know who you are and probably know a lot of the work you've done. But just to get into things, I was wondering if you could kind of touch on how you came to animal welfare and where your passion started. Sure. So I was president of Humane Society Silicon Valley for almost a decade. And I actually ended up in animal welfare really in a rather serendipitous way. I was a senior executive in high tech for many years. I worked at Intuit and I ran a number of different businesses for them over the years. And I had just gotten to the point where, I mean, I loved Intuit. It was an awesome company, but I just felt like I needed to take a step back. And I really thought I was going to go back into high tech. But what ended up happening is I was networking I was introduced to the board chair at Humane Society Silicon Valley. And one thing led to another. And the next thing you know, I joined their board. And I thought it would end there. And six months after being on the board, they asked me if I would like to run the organization and become president. So that was in September of 2010. I had a really just great run at Humane Society Silicon Valley. We became the first shelter in the world to meet the standards put forth by the Association of Shelter Veterinarians. So I'm just a big, big proponent of shelter medicine and everything that it means for animals and organizations that decide to meet those standards. And while I was at Humane Society Silicon Valley, Mutual Rescue came out of that work. So I'm still involved with Mutual Rescue and uh, I'm a board alumni ambassador at Humane Society Silicon Valley still. But Mutual Rescue is where my passion is these days. And Mutual Rescue came about because people would ask me after I joined Humane Society Silicon Valley why I was helping animals when I could be helping people. And I thought that was a really interesting and mm-hmm. quite honestly odd comment. <laughs> uh-huh. And uh, and that led me to really want to make people understand in a very visceral way why rescuing an animal more often than not involves being rescued right back. So that's kind of how Mutual Rescue first started and also a little bit about my involvement in the field and the sector over the last decade. So amazing. Mm-hmm. I don't know, Sydney and I, I mean, have felt it ourselves, like the power of the 
animal human bond. Um, Mm -hmm. And so many people, I mean, if you have a pet, you probably feel it. 10 years in in the industry, a lot has had to happen during that time. I mean, just looking back, I feel like so many things have changed and people have evolved so much over that amount of time. Um, No kill. Could you speak maybe a little bit about the changes that you've seen and maybe um, your hopes for, for how things will continue to evolve there? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I think that you know, no-kill can be a, a controversial term in the in the sector, and there's a lot of kind of different ways to interpret it. And and I actually think that that no-kill is not enough, which may sound kind of odd, but it's not enough to say you're not going to euthanize animals because if you don't have the right practices in place, animals can end up dying anyway from disease. And that's why I'm such a big proponent of shelter medicine, because the whole reason shelter medicine came about was Kate Hurley, who uh, teaches at uh, UC Davis and is just an amazing proponent of shelter medicine. And, and Dr. Hurley is, was one of the, the godmothers of shelter medicine. And it came about because she went to a shelter that was, quote, considered no-kill and she saw a dog that reminded her of a dog she had growing up. The dog's name was Nala. And three weeks later, she came back and Nala was dying from pneumonia, which didn't need to happen mm-hmm. because they just didn't have the protocols or the understanding of how do you manage herd health. And from that, Dr. Hurley made a pledge that she was you know, going to do whatever was necessary to ensure that that wouldn't happen. And what's really great about that story is it came full circle. So when Humane Society of Silicon Valley implemented the 543 guidelines that are associated with excellence in shelter medicine, Dr. Hurley and her team came to do an audit. And the day that she came to do the audit, there was a dog in our care who would otherwise have been nondescript. And that dog's name was Nala. And she got adopted that day. Oh my gosh. And, oh my gosh. Honestly. Yeah, right? And um, and so Dr. Hurley, I mean, listening to the Dr. Hurley tell that story, you're just like bawling. And you hear her life work get summed up, you know, in this one day. So that's just amazing. So one of my hopes for the sector going forward is actually that shelter medicine will become much more widespread. And in fact, I think it's super, super important because the great news is we are making a ton of progress in animal welfare. And I actually believe that over the next 10 to 15 years, rescue work is really going to go international. I mean, it's starting now, but more so because I think we're going to be in better and better shape in the United States and there are going to be people who want to help. There are going to be animals in need in other parts of the world and people are still going to want to adopt. And if we're going to be transporting animals across, you know, whenever you're transporting animals across geographic boundaries, you, you're putting communities of animals at risk. In fact, that's actually how canine influenza got introduced into Northern California. And so shelter medicine is just going to be critically important, especially as rescue work goes international and especially as more transport uh, occurs. We've got to have the protocols and the practices in place that make it possible so that we aren't, aren't spreading disease. And quite honestly, what's really interesting about shelter, shelter medicine and, and the preparation for it and establishing those guidelines and, and using those protocols 
it's honestly, it's kind of like the the precautions for a pandemic in animal welfare. I mean, it's the mm-hmm. equivalent of how do we make sure what's going on with the coronavirus with humans? How do you prep for that in, in, on the animal welfare side? And shelter medicine is it. So it's actually pretty timely. So I think, you know, that's one of the first things I see happening in the next 10 years is just that shift to international work as well as the importance of shelter medicine and just increased transport as we, you know, try to get the balance between, you know, states and in New England that that don't have any adoptable animals and and places in the South where they still are really struggling and have issues with heartworm and things like that. Um, Another thing which relates to the work that I'm doing with Mutual Rescue is that more and more animal services is also about human services. And I also think what's, you know, going on right now, you know, socially is also really interesting in terms of social injustice. And if we care about animals, we actually have to care about humans too. And one of the things that um, when I was at Humane Society of Silicon Valley, we did a lot of data analysis. And what we found was 30% of the animals that were coming into shelters in Santa Clara County were coming from five low-income zip codes in San Jose. And so the, the issue of animal welfare and human welfare goes hand in hand. And again, I think that as we get more advanced in the sector, what we're going to see is a greater integration of human and animal services. And that's going to have a lot of implications for how animal welfare organizations are organized, how they're run. It wouldn't surprise me to see social workers become you know, part of animal welfare organizations as it becomes more about how do you help keep animals in homes? How do you help people do what's necessary to care for their animals in terms of access to care and, and those kinds of things? So a lot of interesting things that I think are going are gonna to play out. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we've touched on a few of these things on past episodes too. I mean, the importance of education for, I mean, yeah. in these shelter environments too. I mean, I can only imagine being being a worker in one of these situations. And of course you, you probably stepped into it perhaps because you love animals and then your hands are a little bit tied behind your back because you have the lack of knowledge there. So I love that shelter medicine aspect of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think just at Cuddly, we've seen how international uh, work can feel like it is in your backyard. Mm -hmm. Um, So I feel like we've, and we've talked about it a little bit, like some people get a little, um, they have strong feelings about supporting locally rather than internationally, but I mean, mm-hmm. as the world has felt so much smaller and smaller every day that goes by. I mean, I think quarantine and COVID have have really made it feel even a little bit smaller. I think all of that, I mean, just sounds like an exciting time, first of mm-hmm. all. Um, I love that I feel like people are finally prioritizing animals as an important part of their community, as an important part of their lives. It's, it's so wonderful. Yeah, I mean, the one thing I, w- I just wanted to add something in about, you know, international work. And uh, I am one of the, I'm a big proponent of, of local rescue and a big proponent that if people in their own backyard, are, if people in a community are not caring for the animals in their own backyard, who's going to do that? And so I, I am not suggesting that uh, international work replace the work that needs to go on in, in local communities. But as we are seeing, we are making huge, huge strides. And if you look at the trajectory of the data, 
you know, in 10 years. And, and I know that's hard to digest. Like if mm-hmm. you're in a, if you're in a shelter and an area that's still dealing with high population, you're like, don't talk to me. You have no idea what my day-to-day life is like. You've got to be <laughs> kidding me. I, I just see what's happening, especially in, in Northern areas of the country, they're running out of animals. And, and that's, that's, that's what we want. We want to solve mm-hmm. that problem. And so when you just look and project out, you can see what's going to happen eventually, even if we've got, you know, big issues here in the short term yeah. and we need to prepare for that. And at the end of the day, shelter medicine helps you whether you're doing local rescue or international rescue. So. Absolutely. Yes. Can you maybe get into a little bit more about mutual rescue itself and, and what it is, what you do? Um, yeah, I'd love to. So um, as I mentioned earlier, mutual rescue came about because people asked me, why are you helping animals when you could be helping people? And I really wanted to elevate the cause of animal welfare. So it's not people or animals, it's people and animals. And people would sometimes say to me, God, I feel so guilty when I give to animals or I feel so guilty when I volunteer my time because there's so many people that are in need. And what I wanted to do was connect the dots so people can see, look, when you're rescuing animals and that animal is going on to share their affection and love with the human being, you are transforming lives in a really profound way Mm -hmm. and making that very crystal clear for people at a very visceral level. And so I started doing a talk in our community. It was called Why Helping Animals Helps People. And in that talk, I was sharing the story of Eric O'Gray. And Eric had adopted a dog uh, from Humane Society of Silicon Valley and had gone on to lose uh, 140 pounds and completely changed his life and, and turned it around. And so I had just kind of, you know, been playing around with this idea. And then one of our board members introduced me just by chance to a gentleman named David Whitman. David was the Um, executive producer of the Tech Awards in Silicon Valley, which is kind of Silicon Valley's version of the Oscars. And David said to me, I, you know, I I asked Sally, this uh, board member at HSSV, who had also been on the board of the Tech Museum, and and he said, I really want to do something with animals. Introduce me to somebody at Humane Society Silicon Valley. So David and I met with no agenda other than just to explore. And so I shared with David this idea of, you know, people or animals versus people and animals. And how can we take this idea of why helping animals helps people and make it magical? And he coined the phrase mutual rescue and said, you know, I think we should make short films that really bring this to light. So we decided to do that. And and it was interesting because at the time I had no idea kind of where the money was going to come from or how it was all going to work. But I just decided to be open and see what might happen. And it was amazing. We had donors just show up out of nowhere to, to fund uh, our first set of films. Um, we made uh, Eric and Petey as our first film in order to, to, to show people why we wanted them to submit their story so we could make more films. And then Eric and Petey went insanely viral. One post on SF Gate alone, that one post, had 35 million views 200,000 comments, 50,000 shares, and it went on to be named by the New York Times um, the number one um, news sto- video news story in California in 2016. And the film has since been viewed 100 million times across the globe. So it just went insanely viral. 
And that's when I knew that we were really on to something. That led to us creating more films that also have done really well. So collectively, all of our short films have been viewed 153 million times around the globe. That led to me writing a book called Mutual Rescue, How Adopting a Homeless Animal Can Save You Too. And what I really wanted to do with all this content was inspire action and encourage people to engage at the local level. So we started reaching out. We, there are some shelters that had started doing a doggy day out program, which is a very progressive uh, way to engage your community. It helps uh, dogs get adopted much more quickly. And um, so we were not the, the creators of that. But what we did is we worked with shelters who were doing those programs to come up with a best in practice toolkit to encourage other shelters to implement the program and make it easier for them to implement. And then we also created a directory so that consumers could find these shelters. So we wanted to take the energy and the excitement from the content and direct people to ways that they could engage at the local level. So the first kind of piece of mutual rescue is kind of, you know, inspiring content and authentic storytelling. The Mm -hmm. second piece is how do you drive engagement at the local level through your community? And then the third piece is how do we get more funding into the sector and, and, and create new funding? which, you know, I love what Cuddly is doing because you guys are, are uh, you know, helping to bring new money into the sector. So what we're doing there is we are approaching um, corporations that might, that, you know, corporations, if they have any kind of broad footprint, are not going to engage with any one local shelter because they need broader brand appeal, broader geographic appeal. So I'm super excited. We have our first corporate promotion with Dutch Bros., so Dutch Bros is in the western part of the United States. It's a coffee company. Uh, they're big animal lovers. We're going to be doing a promotion with them, and they are um, pledging up to $100,000 for each social media post that people do of their dog having a Dutch Bros puppuccino. And oh my so, gosh, so cute. You know. Well, isn't that awesome? Yeah. <laughs> That's so, so awesome. Uh, it'll be on Mutual Rescue's social media page, so people can check that out if you happen to be a Dutch Bros fan or, or live near uh, Dutch Bros, if you post on social media, we'll be able to generate a dollar. So that money will all be going to um, 10 local shelters that are on Mutual Rescue's Doggy Day Out directory that are in the areas that Dutch Bros serve. So we're super excited that we're getting traction now um, in the corporate world and we'll be looking for more corporate sponsors. And again, the idea is we don't want to create a brand that's competing with local shelters. We want to create a brand that's bringing new money in that otherwise wouldn't get to the local level. And that also encourages collaboration. So here, you know, we've got, you know, 10 local shelters that'll be working with us uh, on this, posting on their social media and, you know, trying to get those shares. So we're collaboratively working together to raise more money. So I'm excited about that and, and seeing where all that's going to go. There are going to be so many happy dogs that day. That's going to be ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. So many. It's going to be, there's going to be a lot of hyper dogs. Too. <laughs> and there should be some really great fun photos. Uh, oh, too. yeah. It'll be fun to see, yeah. Definitely. Well, so you kind of touched on Doggy Day Out a little bit, which mm-hmm. I know probably a lot of organizations already know. But just for people who maybe don't, could you go over what that is? Yeah. So unfortunately, with everything going on right now with sheltering in place, a lot of these programs are in hold. But mm-hmm. eventually, I know we, we will get back to be able to do them. So Doggy Day Out 
is a really great way to engage the community. So it enables people in the community to come and take a dog out for the afternoon. And what ends up happening is, you know, people, then they get an attachment to that animal. Sometimes it might end up being an adoption, but even if it doesn't, they then start advocating for that animal and posting on social media, Mm -hmm. oh my God, I met this great dog. Uh, Plus the animal's getting out and about in the community. And so it's getting Seymour. So, you know, there's just been some great results that have that have happened because the animals are getting greater visibility. So how it came about, we had a dog named Frosty. And Frosty, we're having a tough time getting him adopted. I think he'd been with us for I don't know, at least six months, I think. And so we put out a, you know, we tried to play him up on social media to see if somebody would adopt him. No takers. We tried, you know, hey, won't don't you want to foster Frosty? Mm-hmm. No takers. It's like, hey, take him for an overnight, take him for the weekend, you know, just something to to help him break up the monotony of being in the shelter. No takers. Mm-hmm. Finally, we were like, okay, well, does anyone want to take him out for an afternoon? We were flooded with people oh, wow. that wanted to take him out. I mean, it was like it was like you know, crickets, 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 mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden, and then a crowd. Daily. And we were like, oh my god, you know, this doggy day out thing is actually there's something to this. What ended up happening from there was then we got all these great assets from him going out on all these doggy day outs. And a former volunteer at Humane Society of Silicon Valley had moved to Arizona, saw all these pictures, and she's like, I have to have this dog. And she actually drove from Arizona to California to adopt Frosty. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's when we're like, okay, we're going to do this. So when I saw what was going on with Humane Society of Silicon Valley, I said, this is a great, because I wasn't sure how we were going to translate the attention and the action and the energy really that was coming out of our content production. How do we tie that in so that it can drive engagement at the local levels? So you know, finding something that was progressive and supportive of helping animals get adopted more quickly and, and encouraging engagement at the local level is really important. So, and Kristen Arbach at, uh, at Pima County is, she's the, uh, the originator of that program. Actually, I don't think she was at Pima when she did it. I think she was in Virginia. So all we did was really kind of recognize the power of it. And then we collaborated with other shelters like Louisville Metro and Fredericksburg, SPCA, to really, you know, fine tune the best practices around it. And we have a Facebook administrators group for Doggy Day Out. So if you do decide you want to implement the program, you've got a lot of people that are there to support you and bounce ideas off of. As I mentioned, Mutual Rescue pulled together this toolkit, which people can download if you go to mutualrescue.org. You can download that toolkit. It has all the volunteer forms and a manual and stuff that you, so you don't have to recreate it from scratch, which will make it much easier, more efficient to, uh, to get a program implemented when, when people can get to that again. I love that. I think with so many of these new programs too, it can feel so overwhelming when you're just feel like you're starting at like the ground level Mm -hmm. and you're like, how many people do I need? What, what even needs to happen here? So I love that you're like basically giving them everything they need. And it's like, look, it's easier than you think you can do this and it's going to help everyone in the long run. 
I mean, I can only imagine, like I used to walk for wag a little bit and I was stopped every time I walked a dog, like, who is this? And like, I can only imagine yeah. mm-hmm. if I said, Hey, he's adoptable. Like, I'm sure I could have gotten a lot of dogs adopted. <laughs> yeah. I probably yeah. should start. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and they say yeah. like when you, when you picture a dog, like in a home environment, when fosters take photos of their pets at home or on walks, it sort of helps potential adopters look at that dog as if they're, or cat or whatever animal, look at that animal as if it's in their own home. So it almost makes that animal look more adoptable. That's like the word for it. So I can see how that would help. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think you're, you're right on the money, Sydney, which is, you know, when you see an animal in a, in a shelter environment, there's just a little bit of a disconnect. Mm -hmm. But when, you know, you see it, see the animal out for a walk or cuddling in your lab, like that could be neat. Right. You can that imagine it like as itself. yourself versus you're right. The disconnect of seeing them in a, in a shelter kennel or, or somewhere yeah. that's not so homey. Yeah, definitely. And then you have this amazing book as well, Mutual Rescue, which Sydney and I love. I mean, we, we loved it. Out. Oh, thank and you. It's, and like, I love how you broken it up here too. Are the different ways it helps human mm-hmm. beings? I mean, and I'm sure helps animals as well. I mean, that's the whole idea of mutual rescue, but like between like connection, body, mind, all these different areas where like, basically like, it seems like these miracles have happened because animals and people came together. I know there are a lot of really great stories in this book. I'm wondering if there's one that resonates with you the most. You know, I can't, I cannot pick I know, a she's like, I can't pick a favorite. They're, they're, uh, they're all so uh, unique in their own way and, and absolutely amazing, but, oh gosh, I mean, there are just so many, but I think, you know, one of, um, I, again, I don't want to say favorite. That's why. I no, yeah. Um, of course. But the, the, the first chapter opens with the story, um, of actually the Parkland shooting, um, and the student's two students in particular that we profiled that were able to overcome the trauma from that event because of animals in their lives. And Grace is a a student who was particularly helped by a dog named Karma. And what I love about Karma is that it's a program of Humane Society of Broward County. Uh, A woman named Marnie there developed that, she developed a program called Canines for Community Resilience which I love. And so Mm -hmm. she organized volunteers from her shelter to bring shelter dogs to the school to help the students. And it wasn't just like a week. It was for the rest of the school year. You know, like you read a lot about, you know, these groups flying in their dogs to to help out or whatever. And that's wonderful. I Mm -hmm. I don't mean to minimize that. But, you know, the fact that, that Marnie saw this need and that they were rescue animals as well and organized that. And, you know, what a huge, huge gift that community that participated in that gave to the students and the teachers there. And, you know, Grace really credits Karma with, with wanting, you know, her, with her wanting to go back to school just so she could see Karma and, and cuddle with her. And, and I think that one of the value of, of animals in trauma situations is sometimes as a human being, you don't want to talk about it. You're, you're mm-hmm. all talked out or, or you just don't want to put words around it. Yeah. And, and you don't need to do that with an animal. You can just, you can just be there with whatever you're experiencing and their, their presence is the gift that they give you. 
you know, one of our, our short films is called Kylie and Liza. And that story is yes. also in the book as well, which is- I this, loved this, this story. The story like, like broke my heart and mended it in the same instance. And yeah. like, I just, ugh, I, I was telling Bridget about it earlier. I was like, even though I'm not, um, you know, on the same page as, as that family, or, or I, I can't personally resonate with that story. I can, you know, personally resonate with the idea of loss and having to go through grief and the idea that there is comfort in uh, sort of the lack of expectation that animals have. I, I yeah. loved that. That was, it's such a basic thought, but it was so eye-opening to read that story. I was, oh, I'm so happy you mentioned that because I told Bridget earlier, yeah. that was my favorite story to read. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful story. I mean, it it is a sad story, but I think you articulated it well. It simultaneously breaks your heart and heals it at the same time. Mm-hmm. And Kylie was a... a a 12-year-old girl who unfortunately passed away to cancer, but the role that um, this adopted kitten played in in comforting her in her passing, but more importantly, how she helped Robin, who was Kylie's mom, handle the grieving. And one of the things that, that Robin will talk about is that she just reached this point where she didn't want to talk about it anymore. She felt, you know, she felt like she it was a burden to like, you know, have her friends kind of deal with, with that on an ongoing basis. And so, you know, Liza just always kind of sensed what she needed. And she would talk about the fact that she could be anywhere in the house and she would just like break down and start crying. And out of nowhere, there, there was Liza just, you know, being with her and, and, and bringing that presence to her and that sense of comfort and, it just speaks so beautifully to the healing power of animals and and this, this sense of unconditional positive regard that they bring to our lives. I feel like there are so many stories in this book too that are they are heartbreaking, but at the end, like they're so hopeful and they give you so much hope, um, mm-hmm. which I feel like is is such a it feels like it's in short supply, maybe more so lately. Um, yeah. So it's. It's a really refreshing read, I would say. Um, There's a little something for everyone in there. Absolutely. Well, that's definitely what uh, what I was going for. And uh, <laughs> I'm also excited. We're actually working on a documentary series uh, right now based on the book. We're hoping we're going to get that on the, uh, on the television screen or the small screen, streaming mm-hmm. screen soon. Uh, so that's, that's also in the works. Being on the board for Mutual Rescue, I mean, what are what are you guys planning for the next chapter of your <laughs> existence? <laughs> well, more than anything, we want to continue to produce great content mm-hmm. uh, for that high, higher ideal of elevating the cause of animal welfare. So again, it's not people or animals, it's people and animals. And then we want to leverage that into uh, attracting corporate sponsors so that we can get more uh, money into the sector, uh, hopefully help more shelters uh, take on the challenge of, of implementing the practices of shelter medicine and, and more progressive programs. So it's really going to be about, unfortunately, in the short term with everything going on with COVID, the working on more programs that drive engagement is a bit challenging. I mean, that's still part of part of our mission, but we'll be focusing on content and, and trying to secure additional corporate sponsors in the upcoming months. And again, hoping we can just get more money into the sector and, and help shelters with the great work that they're doing. Oh, wonderful. I know. I feel like 
every cent that goes into rescue too. I mean, they use it in such innovative ways. It's, it's pretty incredible to see these people. Like they do things that I could never even imagine mm-hmm. thinking up. So it, it goes to such good use, like more than just like dog food and stuff like that. People use it in amazing ways. Well, and this is, I mean, rescue and animal welfare is, it is hard work and it takes resources and Mm -hmm. it's just super important that we find ways to get the message out and inspire people to want to give and support this work. And, And again, helping people understand that when you're helping animals, you're also helping people. So Mm -hmm. People can feel good about their choice uh, to give to um, animal rescue. Speaking to rescuers more and more, and I feel like maybe this is because of COVID because there's, I feel like animal rescue has become so big during quarantine. Mm -hmm. I mean, so many people are fostering, adopting, there's so much going on. And because, and on the other side of things, like there, there are troubling situations that have been arising as well. So I've been seeing actually a lot more talk about compassion fatigue. I don't know if it's something that you personally have experienced, but I feel like everyone we've spoken to is so hopeful and so full of energy. And I, it's amazing to see, but also I have to imagine like there is another side to that coin of like, you need to, in order, like you can't, I've said it before, but you can't pour from, from an empty cup. So I'm wondering if you ever experienced any of that working in everything that you've done. Yeah, I mean, compassion fatigue is is very real in the context of, and I think you articulated it well, which is that there's so much need out there that you just think, oh, you give, 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 mm-hmm. give, and then you haven't given anything to yourself. And I think it's especially challenging right now because there's just general fatigue that comes with sheltering in place. And I'm no longer running Humane Society Silicon Valley. and but Kurt Krukenberg is our new president who I absolutely adore and is a phenomenal leader. It's actually kind of funny. It's like, you know, obviously neither one of us had no idea that all of this was coming and I transitioned out of the role and, and gave him the baton and his first 90 days, he got hit with COVID and sheltering in place. And I was like, I'm like, okay, I knew like you were going to have some challenges, but I just didn't see this in coming. So we kind of laugh about that. But I think one of the things that's really challenging in animal welfare right now is it's challenging work in the best of circumstances. And now you have to, you've got to adjust to all of these, you know, other things to be able to continue to do your work. So Humane Society Silicon Valley is deemed an essential service, but that doesn't mean, you know, people can come freely in and out of the doors to do adoptions. It's like there's, there's signups and, you know, when there's too many people that want to come in, we have to, you know, they're limiting adoption appointments so that they can be done safely. And and how do you handle um, intake in a safe manner? So all of those things are just contributing to the stress. And I think it's really important that both individuals and leaders, you know, take that into account and, you know, be kind to yourselves, be kind to one another. Uh, I, I wish I had a, a great, easy answer for it. But I mean, it's interesting. I, you know, I will just share, like I know for myself with the demands of running Humane Society Silicon Valley, I found it incredibly challenging. You know, I usually have my, like I know my limit. My limit is three animals in my household as a single person. 
And, you know, I love the staff at HSSB. There's people that have like, you know, eight, nine, ten. And it's like, I, I admire them. But like for <laughs> me personally, I, I didn't have the bandwidth to be able to deal with the challenges of running an organization and have three animals, three animals of my own and foster. Like mm-hmm. I periodically would foster, but I would get so focused on the animal. But then I actually wasn't, I wasn't able to focus my energies on the bigger things that the organization needed. And, and that was, you know, it's challenging when you come face to face with your own limitations because you think you should be able to do it all, mm-hmm. but we're human. And so I think one of the most important things is recognizing what are your own personal limitations and, and, and recognizing in order for me to, to function at my best and, and be most productive and have the greatest amount of good, I have to know what my limits are. And um, I think that's the biggest lesson that I learned for myself. That is, yeah, right. So true. So true. <laughs> it's such a tall order finding that limit too. Yeah. <laughs> it's, well, I think you're right too. Like everyone, you, I think a lot of people, I know I do have like trouble coming to terms with my own limitations because you want to do everything. You, you know, you almost want to push yourself to do everything you possibly can. But I guess, I guess admitting to yourself when, when it needs to stop to make sure that, you know, what you're doing is quality work rather than quantity work. Yeah. I think it's really difficult. Yeah. Well, and especially in, in scenarios in animal welfare where mm-hmm. literally, you know, lives are at stake and, and, you know, I mean, certainly there's plenty of healthcare workers that now that are dealing with that in the midst of all this COVID stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's super challenging and the circumstances we're living in right now make it even, you know, it, as I said, it, it's challenging in the best of circumstances. And right now it's just even more so. Absolutely. Well, so you talk a lot about, um, like mutual rescue and like the, what the amazing things that happened when, when the mm-hmm. right match is made. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know we, and every organization we've talked to, it sounds like they have a little bit different uh, adoption process, whether it's like totally open, whether they're a little bit stricter. So I'm wondering what your process was at Silicon Valley Humane and, and where you think and how you think it should be. And maybe um, what are great qualities to look for when you're adopting out an animal. Cause I know for mm-hmm. me, when I was fostering, I got all these applications in and I was like, I have no idea. You all look great. Humane Society Silicon Valley is really focused on matchmaking. In general, I am not a fan of super restrictive policies. And I will tell you the story that was really interesting. When I got to Humane Society Silicon Valley, there were fairly restrictive adoption protocols in place. And we did this exercise as we were looking to kind of change the way we addressed adoptions and how we engage with our community. We, had, we started this, this exercise by everybody standing up and then we read through our requirements for adoption. And if you did not meet the requirement, you had to sit down. In a room of about 100 people, when we were done, there were two people that were standing. Oh my gosh. Wow. And I wasn't one of them. So if the people that are doing this work and mm-hmm. care passionately about it, and I could look around the room and say, anybody in that room would have been an amazing mm-hmm. adopter. That was what helped people get comfortable with the idea of we cannot have these broad sweeping 
requirements in place that are just eliminating people without any kind of a discussion. So we definitely shifted to a more open adoption policy, which is about having dialogue and discussion. Now, does that mean that anybody can adopt any animal they want for any reason? No. Um, There's a lot of times where it's just like, wow, you know, this isn't a good fit or you know, there'll be something that just doesn't feel, you know, right. And so we asked an adoption counselor to talk with the manager to get at, you know, is this just a personal bias or, you know, is there actually a real red flag here? And I think the biggest thing is that if you take the time, it takes, it does take a little bit more time up front, but quite honestly, you know, I I know that there are, are organizations that are big on, you know, home visits. And I just, you know, like, I just, I, I think about it from a broader perspective, which is all the time that's getting invested in there. You know, the more animals can get placed more quickly into appropriate homes, the more animals that can be saved. Mm-hmm. And so you're so focused on the one animal and there's another 20 animals that just got euthanized at an overcrowded shelter. So, you know, it's finding that balance between kind of, quote, open adoptions, but that, again, that doesn't mean not, it doesn't mean random. Uh, mm-hmm. It means thoughtful, and that uh, matchmaking is just super critical. I mean, what we found at Humane Society of Silicon Valley, I mean, we, when I got there, we were doing, I think, about 4,000 adoptions a year, and when I left, we were doing 7,000, about 7,000. You know, as we had, you know, a more of an open adoption process, we were able to just place animals that much more quickly. And we didn't see a huge, you know, increase in the return rate either. So our save rate went up significantly. The number of animals that we were saving went up in total. So it really can have very profound impacts to Mm -hmm. uh, life-saving results. Totally. Amazing. I mean, I know it's kind of funny, like when I was adopting out one of because I was doing this four pack of kittens <laughs> four um, pack. and I think the the couple I was like most nervous about it was kind of bizarre I was like I don't know they're a little young they're all these things and afterwards like I realized I'm like that may have actually been the best couple because I saw how excited and how invested and they had all of these things that they had brought with them and they were telling me afterwards how wonderful things were going and I'm like oh my gosh like just because they didn't charm the pants off me doesn't mean they weren't the perfect home for this this little animal. Um, yeah. It's an amazing thing. And it, like, it, it definitely checked me. I was like, oh, why do they need to impress me? I'm not going to live with them. Like, <laughs> it's yeah, funny. Know, it's, it's funny. There was, I, I wish I could find it. I haven't been able to locate it, but somebody told me there's an episode of Modern Family where like they were talking about trying to adopt an animal and it was like, the hoops that they had to go through were, you know, like it was harder to adopt an animal than it was to like adopt a human baby or something. And, um, and again, I, I am absolutely not advocating for, you know, any animal, any person. Um, but I think there are ways that we can be thoughtful about it that can, um, enable more animals to be placed Mm -hmm. and more animal lives to be saved. Definitely. Absolutely. I feel like you're, you're so wise. I've it just, <laughs> I wish we could keep asking you questions forever, but I, I don't want to take up too much of your time. So how can people uh, and rescue orgs get involved with Mutual Rescue? Check out mutualrescue.org. That's our website. 
All of our uh, short films are available there, uh, except for one, which is uh, making the, the film festival route right now, and people can find it through online film festivals. Uh, but we do make those films available to folks. And again, right now, it's, it's a little different because of sheltering in place. But uh, if shelters want to do film festivals in their own community, uh, we offer those films to them to be able to do that. So just, you know, getting involved with the content and, and sharing it is great. If you have great mutual rescue stories, you can submit them to us for consideration in, um, in an upcoming uh, documentary, another short film, or... Um, you know, potentially uh, another another book or something like that. So we always want to be sharing um, stories that are coming out of shelters. If you're interested in implementing Doggy Day Out, uh, again, you know, maybe not in the short term with everything going on, although depending mm-hmm. on what part of the country, maybe, you know, that's feasible. So you can download the toolkit, become part of the, the Facebook group. And, you know, if you're, if you're interested in just, you know, finding out more about Mutual Rescue, you can shoot us a note at hello at mutualrescue.org as we are uh, developing more corporate partnerships, more corporate sponsorships, and we'll be looking for, you know, shelters in various parts of the country that align with the geographical areas of these companies. We're always looking for folks that are, are doing progressive sheltering work that, you know, might want to connect with us around that. So we welcome that as well. And check us out on Facebook mm-hmm. uh, as well. Follow us on Facebook and, uh, you know, Instagram and Twitter and all that to hear the latest. And you can uh, also pick up a copy of Mutual Rescue, How Adopting Homeless Animal Can Save You Too. It's available on basically anywhere uh, books are sold, um, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Indie Books. If you can go into a bookstore, it's probably in a bookstore uh, these days too. So Hardback came out in March of 2019 and the paperback came out in March, uh, this past March, March 2020. Yes, definitely get that book. It's the perfect uh, COVID reading. Uh, <laughs> if you're trapped in your home, keeps things uh, optimistic. Thank you so much for taking a little bit of time uh, for telling us about everything that's been going on um, and will continue to happen in the world of rescue. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks, Bridget and Sydney. It was really fun to spend time with you and uh, love what you, got, what you guys are doing and a uh, big fan of Cuddly. Thank you. It was so incredible to talk to Carol today and to learn about mutual rescue and the connection between human and animal welfare. To watch some of these highlighted stories or to learn more about the initiative, please go ahead and visit our blog. Don't forget, you can leave us a review and we'll send over one of our cuddly shirts. Um, Don't forget to rate, like, and subscribe. And you can follow us on social media at We Love Cuddly. That's C-U-D-D-L-Y. Thanks.